Hello, I'm Nick Baker, and this is the UK Wildlife Podcast. Hello and welcome to the UK Wildlife Podcast with me, Victoria Hillman. And me, Neil Phillips. And for this episode, we've got a very special guest in Rob Reed. Hello, Rob. Hi, guys. We're actually going to get on and chat with Rob shortly, but we're actually going to start off with some podcast news. And I think you've got that, haven't you, Neil, this week? Yes, we do have some news. Well, first of all, let's just say thanks to everyone for joining our first birthday celebration stuff. Um, we had quite a few people on the live show we did on instagram and a bit more news on live shows later on and people seem to have enjoyed our special edition with george mcgavin on which was fantastic for us as well yeah and we've had people leaving some lovely reviews we have our first review on facebook from maku maku hannerton superb listening enough said thank you very much we've also had free apple reviews and we really appreciate these as well because apparently it helps with our ranking on apple or something had a review from someone whose username is lots of ones lots of twos lots of threes and lots of sixes which just says great podcast absolutely love this and i'm learning so much completely hooked bob m miller has put brilliant learned so much about uk wildlife on this podcast and it really makes you keen to protect and explore it exactly what we're going for that is and we had ed poo say simply splendid everything you ever wanted to know about wildlife and many things you didn't so thanks so much to you three for those reviews well all four of you i should say for those reviews very much appreciated yeah uh, any reviews and feedbacks that we get we do really really appreciate so yeah just yeah. keep it coming so rob as the guest have you had any recent wildlife highlights or sightings well, i've actually had quite a few vic will know this sort of a couple of hundred yards up the road or up the path from my house there's a hundred acres of woodland and that's been quite productive recently when i've been walking the dog around so about a week ago i had the sort of first mass sighting of red wings uh, so they've come in and i suppose probably 150 or or more and they were still there today actually when i walked around so that was that was nice to see them um and continuing on the on the thrush theme i've had the song thrushes starting singing again in the and I've sort of spent a fair bit of time just sort of watching them and, and just listening to them uh, singing away. And last night, uh, I tend to take the dog out just after it gets dark um, with a head torch. And there's quite a few tawny owls in the wood as well. And, and every now and again, you know, I'll come across one on the on the path when it's hunting. And that happened last night. So I had a really lovely sighting of uh, tawny, a little video on my phone of it, actually. And the other day, oh, yeah, the other day as well, I came across um, a door beetle which was munching its way through um, some horse manure. That was, that was quite exciting. Um, and apparently there's a, just down the road from me, uh, there's a great grey shrike, um, which I've, I've never seen before. never seen a great grey shrike before, so I'm, I'm really tempted to go and have a look for that tomorrow. I'd certainly be tempted by the shrike. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've never seen one before, so it's got to be done, hasn't it? Yeah. It has. How about you, Vic? So I'm going to stick with the wildlife hearings rather than sightings because uh, my tawny owls are still calling. I swear they get earlier every day. They started about half past four today. It's actually really nice because they call right up into the evening. So I basically I go to bed listening to the tawny owls calling out the back 
I do then get woken up in the morning by the girls calling out the back as well, that which is not so nice. But there we go. I actually saw a pair of red kites the other day when I was off somewhere. I think that's it, really. It's been a bit quiet on the wildlife front around here. Now, this isn't my sighting, but I'm going to mention it in the sightings because it's very, very unusual. And it's an early sighting, even for this particular location. This is a report of frog spawn. I did just say that, frog spawn, wow. on the 25th of November. So just to give you an idea, we're recording on the 26th of November. Uh, this came in yesterday. It's come in from Cornwall Wildlife Trust at their Windmill Farm Nature Reserve at the Lizard. And they normally get some of the earlier sightings of frog spawn anyway because of the, the difference in climate down there. But I think this is early even for them. 25th of November. I think that's the earliest I've ever heard of. So yeah. like I said, it's not my sighting, but I thought really good one to put in the sightings. Wow. So it's, someone actually tagged me on Twitter yesterday asking uh, why the the male frogs are calling at their courting so this warm weather is catching things out i think and, uh, I've, I've actually yeah somebody else said that they've had frogs calling in their garden and i think that was more over this way as well and i can tell you now those frogs are definitely going to get a shock because we had quite a heavy frost last night oh uh, still <laughs> quite mild in one... oh no we're, we're definitely sub-zeros now at night here for a couple uh, of days at least so any sightings from you yeah, there's been still been a few dragonfly sightings around here. Someone in Hertfordshire is still getting willow emeralds, which is a record late sighting ever. I mean, they're a recent colonist, so not, there's only 10 years of records to go back through, I think. But that's still quite impressive. Myself, I've been sieving leaves and looking under logs the last week. I was really A normal week for you then, Neil. Yeah, basically. Well, no, I've never done leaf sieving before, no, really, I don't think. Mm. I've done it with soil with my dad's sieve when I was a kid, I think. But I was naughty and took advantage of Black Friday deal, which I try not to do. <laughs> Spent £10 on a one centimetre hold sieve and sieved a load of soil and found some cool harvestmen, ichneumon wasps, frill horse species of springtail, and possibly, uh, if you go back to the garden ant episode, that Mimrica rubra or not necessarily rubra but we get these micro queens where the queens are about the size of a worker and i think i might have found one in the leaf litter but i haven't had a chance to id it properly yet but i think find of the week would be the symphilin which anyone if you know what that is because i wouldn't have known if people asked me but i had heard of them but nope nope it's a type of myriapod so like millipedes and centipedes but it's its own group so it's not a centipede or a millipede they do sometimes call it a garden centipede or pseudo centipede it's basically a white centipede thing with lots of legs about a centimeter long a bit shorter i knew it was one of these weird centipede millipede things so i've seen a brand new group of animals which is quite nice and driving home from work the other day i saw two roe deer run across the road which is the first roe deer i've seen all year so that was quite nice but other than that sparrows in the garden and buzzards flying around at work Ooh. again and that reminds me our starling is back the one that mimics the buzzard call oh lovely it's back i heard yeah, it I the other day when i was walking around oh well, my daughter spotted the starlings are starting to flock into bigger flocks around the town at the moment it's only about 100 200 birds she was very uh, captivated by those that's quite nice on the school run in the morning and on the way back actually it didn't be flying around so uh but yes, I think now it's time to move on to the news. Yeah. And so, again, you know, Rob, we're going to let you go first. because I think you've got a couple of news stories you're going to share with us. Well, I mean, the first one's quite exciting, isn't it? The sort of thought of uh, Dalmatian pelicans again in the UK is, is pretty amazing. So there's a, you know, there are rumours of sort of reintroduction programme being discussed and possibly where you are, Vic, on some set levels. So that's, um, you know, it'd be amazing to see those birds back in the UK. Was it hundreds of years, two or three hundred years since they've yeah. been? Yeah. Quite a long yeah. time. So, Not even so, longer. 
because uh, Benedict McDonald in his rebirding book, I think it, it actually started, the story started from something Benedict said somewhere. And in his book, he talks about rewilding large areas of the Somerset levels back to basically a floodplain, really, because at the moment it's all sort of, you know, got all flood defences and stuff. And then that would make it richer in fish and then be able to support the pelicans i think is the long-term plan yeah, it'd be amazing to have them back wouldn't it yeah i think they were also talking about sort of suffolk and norfolk as well so you know sort of similar habitats but what an amazing thing to have back in the uk well, it's, it's those natural floodplains isn't it and they, i mean yeah. the thing is they are natural floodplains they're there to do a job really so yeah that would be pretty amazing wouldn't it yeah it, it certainly would. I think one turned up in Cornwall, and it, I think it was believed to be wild. That would have been quite fun to see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're big birds. They're big birds. I've, I've seen the St. James's ones. I don't know. I, can't, I think they might be Dalmatian pelicans there. I can't remember now. Some people say they're among the biggest flying birds. It's up there with the swans and the bustards, isn't it? Yeah, mm. yeah it certainly is. Yeah. yeah, and the other bit of news, well, it was a survey on, um, on hen harriers, actually, and what they were what they've been consuming in Scotland. And it turns out, surprise, surprise, that although about 89 or 90% of their diet is birds, guess what? Three, four, five percent something like that is actually grouse. The rest of it is, is meadow pivots and, uh, and small songbirds. So, you know, <laughs> sort of corroborating what I think we all knew um, anyway. Yeah. Yes. Someone made a point a while ago that they probably eat even less grouse if they didn't shoot everything else. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> that's a whole other matter. But uh, talking of hen harriers and grouse moors, due to, uh, well, we mentioned a while ago, didn't we? Especially in the Yolo Williams episode, a third of satellite tag golden eagles went missing under suspicious circumstances over grouse moors. And we've talked about bird of prey persecution. And for years, the RSPB have been pushing for driven grouse moors to be licensed. And in Scotland, because of the years of persecution, a report did recommend that they gave them five years to sort their act out. But they've had decades to do it now. And the Scottish government have said they're looking into licensing grouse moors. So a bit of good news there, hopefully. Yeah, as long as they actually enforce the licensing scheme, then maybe oh. we'll see some progress on this bird of prey. Of course, the grouse moor organisations are all annoyed about it, and who cares? They've had their chance, quite frankly, in my book. Yes. A bit of a watch this space one, really, isn't it? Yeah. Another story which is a bit watch this space. We did we did attempt to cover it in the last episode, but I deleted it in the end because I didn't like what I didn't explain it very well. But some of you would have seen earlier this month, end of last month, well, Justice have forced Defra because they're going to take them to court and probably win and forced Defra to look at licensing the release of pheasants which is something that has been mentioned by pretty much every guest we've had on this podcast the problem uh, yeah. the problem of pheasants <laughs> was it tens of millions of pheasants and red-legged partridge both um, non-native to the UK despite what I saw someone from a hunting group say that pheasants would have spread here naturally they claimed really uh, yeah all the way from yeah, Asia. Because yeah, 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 yeah. apparently they're spreading, they are spreading westwards. The general gist is it's all up in the air a bit. It's going to be challenged, of course, is that you won't be able to release pheasants within, I think it was half a kilometre or so of like, SSIs and nature reserves and stuff like that because you have to assess if it's going to have a negative impact on the wildlife there. So it's, again, another step in the right direction. It may be 2020, but that's two positive licensing stories that, as long as, again, licenses are worthless if they're not enforced so well mm. that's always the that's always the yeah. problem which brings me on nicely <laughs> God, I'm, I'm, I'm segueing well here today is this time for neil's rant it's for to my rant that well i might even have two actually but we'll, we'll start with this one now one subject i don't i think we've touched on it maybe is fox hunting by which i mean fox hunting with dogs now for those who don't know although 
you'd be living under a rock, I think, if you haven't heard. Fox hunting with dogs was banned, which basically banned the hunting of deer and foxes with a pack of dogs. And there's loads of loopholes like you can use two dogs to flush them and shoot them. But the most popular loophole being used. Now, I should point out that some groups, no doubt, actually do trowel hunt, which is basically where you lay a trowel of scent along the ground and then your hounds follow the scent and then you chase after them with your horses and everyone has a jolly time and no foxes are killed. But weirdly, quite often it seems that they seem to happen to find a fox. And if you look around online, there's even videos of people standing on the trail ready to release a fox. And this is a whole podcast <laughs> in itself. But there's all look around online, there's all sorts of evidence and running across railway lines and A roads and hounds getting hit by cars running into cat sanctuaries and uh, running to fields full of pregnant ewes who then miscarry all their lambs and stuff like that. And you start thinking, is this really a trowel hunt? And for years, people have been trying to get the National Trust and everyone to ban trowel hunts because one trowel hunter who've got permission to run across National Trust land ran across the land onto a nearby beach where they attacked someone's pet dog. And the National Trust have always said, oh, if you see something illegal, report it to the police, nothing to do with us kind of thing. But there's been a significant twist in this long-running tale of trowel hunts. The hunting office, hosted a load of seminars which you might describe as the how to get away with illegal fox hunting seminar there's a series of three in august and people talking were people like phil davis who's an ex-police inspector and was the police liaison consultant to the countryside alliance lord mancroft who's a conservative peer and he's chair of the master of foxhound association and a former chair of the countryside alliance so it's that sort of people and it's quite extraordinary some of the stuff they're saying here's a direct quote it's a lot easier to create a smoke screen if you've got more than one trowel out operating so they basically were saying, people, that you've got to appear to trail hunting, even if you're not. You know, if someone's filming, make sure they don't see what you're doing and stuff. I would recommend just go and watch the video for yourself. I would say it's extraordinary, but everyone kind of knew this was going on. But it's proof that they're actively trying to mislead people. So the hunt saboteurs I've quoted of saying, online Zoom webinars run by the hunting office are evidence of a national conspiracy by hunters to commit perjury and actively flout the ban on hunting with hounds. Throughout the three hours of talks, Hunts are clearly and repeatedly incited to engage in mass criminality and have shown how to present a smokescreen to anyone watching. And I've watched it and it, all sorts of things they say in it. Some other examples of things that they suggested were being careful using terrier men. So this is one of the accusations they've had to face in the past that terrier men are used to dig out foxes. But why would you have terrier men on a trail hunt unless you were going to, you knew you were going to get a fox and dig one out? If you dig the set, you can't see it accidentally hunting it then, can you? I'm watching the astonishment, partly of the brazenness of what they're saying but also that they were daft enough to let someone that shouldn't be there or let someone leak what they were saying that's so incriminating it's quite extraordinary of course the hunting office had something to say about this and they said the seminars clearly dealt with the operation and promotion of legal trail hunting and managing animal rights activism watch it yourself is what i'm going to say on that but there's been a development in the last couple of days a senior police officer said they will consider exactly what's being said and what's going on and the police are going to review the relationship with the hunt. And what's happened today is the Forestry Commission and even more significantly, the National Trust have temporarily stopped all trail hunting on their land until the police finish their investigation. I mean, you might suggest with all the restrictions going on that they shouldn't be doing it anyway, but there we go. Oh, and there's two more depressing stories, really, isn't there? There is. We're just going to let you have them tonight. Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to do them all. The horrible story of at Northwood Hill RSPB Reserve in North Kent, a family mourning the loss of a loved one decided to go out for a walk and they were filming a buzzard flying around. Um, they, I think they were in the reserve, but flying around just next to the reserve. Heard a shot, 
And on this video, which you can watch online, the buzzer just drops out of the sky. They called the police, who then came out of the R2B and looked for the bird, and they couldn't find it. A few days later, and a bird watcher spotted a buzzard struggling on the ground. And when they found it, they um, picked it up, took it to the vets, and unfortunately it had to be euthanized. But when they looked at the wounds with an x-ray, there was four pieces of shot lodged in its wing, shoulder and leg. Now, the wing was consistent with when it's deemed to be shot but the other three pellets were older so they've been shot at before and the police have spoken to a man in connection with the incident so unfortunately it might be a case of they know who probably did it but they can't prove it we'll not see what nice, happens not a nice thing for that family yeah. to witness either yeah. it's especially I mean, it's not a nice thing to happen yeah yeah no yeah you go out for a bit of peace and you know nature therapy and see that uh, there has to be there has to be a sort of change in the law here really yeah and, um you know i, I just think that you know, perhaps the law should be something like the landowner has to take responsibility for this sort of behaviour. Yes. How else are you ever going to control this? Yeah. But that's, they can always hide behind that. Oh, I didn't know they were there, I suppose, and trespassing. That, that's, that's the problem. Yeah. We, we've all seen the, the famous the famous clip, haven't we, of Hen Harry being shot and the yep. guy walking out of the frame and the case collapsing against him mm-hmm. when it's you know cut and dried they the judges in scotland suddenly decided that video evidence was inadmissible unless you had a permit you know and i always said if i went out and keyed his car and someone filmed it on their phone but they didn't have a permit would he dismiss the case then i don't think so somehow even more depressing news well i'm always banging on about river pollution well here's one that someone from the freshwater habitats trust and bug life have been going on about it as well and there has already been a study on this and it's flea treatments Fipronils has been detected in 98% of freshwater samples in a study by Professor Dave Golson and Rosemary Perkins, who's doing a PhD from the University of Sussex. They analysed data gathered from the Environment Agency in English waterways between 2016 and 2018. And the average concentration of this Fipronil was five times the safe level on average now this is not a chemical used by in agriculture so you can't blame the farmers and they suggest the source is probably from where people have given this flea treatment to their dog or possibly cat and then bathed it and it's washed down the drain and and ended up going through the sewage works and getting into rivers but there's also some cases where it might be where the dog has been swimming because this stuff is so persistent and it breaks down to something even more toxic that if a, a dog swam in a pond on top of a mountainside, uh, you know, one of these pools you get on a stream on a mountainside, it could be contaminating that stream for ages afterwards. Now, the problem is a lot of this stuff is obviously prescribed by vets, but there's, I mean, they don't do it so much now, but I do remember on TV, there was always these flea treatment. Oh, treat your cat or your dog once a month with this flea treatment to make sure it doesn't get fleas, which is totally over the top. You know, you, don't, you only need to treat them when they've got a problem rosie perkins one of the culprits of this study said the use of pet parasite products has increased over the years with millions of dogs and cats now being routinely treated multiple times per year when this story broke the freshwater habitats trust shared that classic image of a, a pond divided down the middle one side where the dogs were getting in and basically destroying the pond and the other side which looks lovely and healthy and full of plants they suggested that this study showed that in a pond which hasn't been studied um, the effect could be yet another problem for them. Before I go any further, a lot of dog owners are responsible. I'm sure you are, Rob, are one of them because you yeah, actually you know, <laughs> But having worked in a park that was popular with dogs for many years with many good dog owners, unfortunately, there are some dog owners with that certain attitude that, how dare you accuse my dog of anything? And 
predictably on social media it did descend to that and people accusing the freshwater habitats trust of lying and oh how do the plants get killed by the the insecticide and they didn't read what they actually wrote and i posted about it and had loads of people protesting saying it must be the farmers and then i pointed them to the study which showed that farmers don't only rarely used it but it's banned from use now so it's unlikely to be that no well interestingly that a few years ago there's a quite a popular common in Stockbridge which is on the test and a few years ago they fenced off quite a lot of that bank side because it was getting eroded by people allowing their dogs to sort of throw themselves into the river and and, and it's it's been you know the, the, the change has been quite incredible with a lot more sort of plant and invertebrate you know life coming back to those banks and, and sort of shoring themselves back up again rather than being sort of flattened down and being washed away so you know there's all that sort of thing as well which is which is a problem yeah one of the lakes at the my childhood park or the big lake there i hadn't been there for a few years they fenced off two ends and the other two the long sides are not fenced off now there are a few swan and geese there but at the entry points where the dogs would be coming round down the path and straight into the lake there's a channel that is this lake was round at the corner basically there's now a channel that's at least six meters long yeah. and two meters wide at one end a meter wide at the other end and this is a it had a classic lake profile where the you know the grass just went into the water there's now a one to two foot cliff all the way along the edge of it yeah. where the dogs have just eroded it away and i looked on google maps because if you go on google maps you can change the year now can't you and you can see the lake is actually expanded in size where they've eroded the bank yeah. away and it's completely brown so uh, along that edge certainly anyway it's completely brown all the time because it's a clay soil which is not going to do much for the fish and the aquatic life in there but where they fenced it off and where the dogs can't get anymore of course that's now lush vegetation it just shows you the contrast really doesn't it yeah. that's another issue that's going to have to be dealt with soon otherwise you know they're not the main cause of wildlife decline let's be honest but in a nature reserve where it's like the the last oasis for certain creatures they could be the final straw they could be and so could cats before anyone said what about cats anyway you've got got a nice news story to finish yes so we're going to finish the news story with potentially very encouraging story and i really do hope this works we've done the stories about the birds and everything else let's get on to something far more exciting lichens so this is a story that say lichen because i could have said i'm liking the sound of that um because we've been through that one before i'm such a fun guy (laughs) so you want to have to work with everyone Um, Anyway, so the National Trust are attempting to save one of England's rarest ancient lichens by removing it from a fallen veteran oak tree and transferring it to other nearby trees. And this is taking place in the Lake District. So this old growth species is surviving in only a handful of sites in the lakes where where its presence is an indicator of a healthy woodland. Now, the translocation is the largest ever attempted and it's being carried out by the National Trust in, in partnership with the British Lichen Society, the Cumbria Lichen and Bryophyte Group, and also Plant Life. So this uh, lungwort lichen has been living on this veteran oak tree, um, which is thought to be between two to 300 years old. Now, unfortunately, the tree itself actually blew down in storms earlier this year, but the tree is thought to have one of the single largest communities of the Baria pulmonaria basically they're they're trying to translocate it to or they have i believe already done it translocated it to several other trees in that area to hopefully keep that community going so fingers crossed for the lichens and everyone that's involved in that project i really hope it's a success well that was probably our longest news segment we've ever done (laughs) (laughs) so moving on um we're going to chat to rob 
Rob, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself and then we'll get into what we're going to talk to you about? Yeah, so probably, well, there's a certain thing that most people will know me for, but primarily I'm a, a photographer and writer. And uh, for a few years now, I've been running a photo library called Nature Photographers Limited, sort of managing that. But I guess, you know, what most people will know me for is uh, Photographer of the Year, which I started along with a couple of other people and have been running until very recently. So uh, that's sort of, you know, a bit about me, I guess, and a couple of new projects that I'm that I'm working on at the moment, which I think we're, we're, we're going to talk about you know, as we get into it but uh, yeah so that, that's effectively you know it's effectively me so probably a little bit of background into how we know you're probably more specifically me so I've actually probably only known you for a couple of years but obviously actually know you when that first contact was when you actually sent me that email to ask yeah. if I'd like to join the judging panel and that was a couple of years ago but now I'm very honoured to call you one of my closest friends likewise so it's, you know, it's really amazing uh, how things work out. And, and I think, you know, so those new exciting projects that we want to actually really talk to you about tonight. So should we start with Purple Crow? Um, yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Um, the kind of ideas behind it? Because it's really interesting how it started, I think. And well, let, let, yeah, let me give you a bit of background as to how it started. Um, I, uh, I've moved into the village where, where I'm currently living, well, about two and a half years ago. And the sort of first early spring I was here um, I discovered a pretty busy toad crossing right in the middle of the village which I it was quite late on in the season actually so they were they were almost finishing but I remember spending a you know a couple of really busy nights on my own running up and down the road filling the buckets with toads you know not believing the, the numbers that I was collecting and then I during the course of that you know those evenings um I bumped into a chap who lived on the road and could see me running up and down, you know, the road with all these buckets of toads. Um, introduced himself, just happens to be an ecologist who runs the Natural History Society, the sort of group of three villages that, um, you know, that, that, are, that are in this area. And between the two of us, we got together a, um, a toad patrol group, um, which we started um, and ran properly this year. Um, so we, oh, over the course of probably January to April, I think the numbers were in the, in the region of 5,000 toads we collected over that, you know, over that period. So it's oh. a pretty busy crossing. <laughs> yeah. uh, and we sort of came to an end of, of, of that process just as lockdown hit. Um, and I thought, oh, wouldn't it be a nice idea to send all the, you know, send all the people that had helped? Because we, we got together probably 30 people from the village who would, come out and do it on a rotor basis um, over the course of the spring. Um, and I thought, well, it wouldn't it be a nice thing to, you know, as a thank you to them, just to keep their spirits up and, and send them an email every now and again. So I'd, I'd send them a picture and I'd send them a little bit of a wildlife fact. So it was only, you know, a couple of hundred words and a picture, something like that. And I and I'd do it every day. Um, and, the, the you know, my ecologist friend, um, Ben Kite, um, who, uh, well, we'll come on to, come on to that later but um, he also started sending out emails you know to people and our respective lists grew people just sort of said oh you know can we can you add us to the list because we you know we, we really like this and I'd bump into people walking their dogs around the wood and they you know they'd say oh you know thank you for your email this morning that was oh I didn't I didn't know that or that was a lovely photograph and I just thought well there, there has to be something in this um, you know there has to be a market for because everybody sort of 
in that reconnection with nature over the spring, there was a there was a um, you know a lot of comments over you know about that and something which is I think you know is a feeling which is which is still with us actually. You know, as we go through through the year, and I thought, well, I said there has to be something in this. Perhaps we can you know we can do it on a more organised basis. So hence I came up with the idea of Purple Crow. Um, the name for which was, you know, derived after a few glasses of red wine one night, um, <laughs> as you do. Um, and uh, basically, it's a it's an email subscription service, um, which there are two elements to. Um, one is a, a, a you know a free subscription where you know you'll get three emails a week. There'll be two three hundred words with a picture. Um, we run a couple of um, themed uh, emails during the week. So what the, one of them that we're running at the moment is the geese of the UK, for example. So we might do, might profile six geese species over a six-week period. The other one is hawk moths, which we're doing at the moment. Uh, and then a, um, something else which I send out on a Saturday will just be a random fact. So it might be, uh, well, I think this weekend coming up is, is a rant about not burning your leaf litter, for example. Um, or it might be a poem or something wildlife related um, the other bit that we run is is a little bit more detailed so that um, we run a, a sort of paid subscription so for that you get a couple of detailed articles a week on a Wednesday and a, and a Sunday uh, and Vic you've written a, you've written a few things um, for us over over the few months we've been running so and it, it, we'll, we'll just pick something random then. You know, I think wildlife always has this way of speaking to you. And we all know the subject matter is endless. And it's things come into my head or I get a group of people. You know, we've got a group of great contributors together, you know, which includes which includes me. Um, and, you know, I'm getting all sorts of uh, you know, different submissions from people from the crabs of Christmas Island through to me going on about, you know, the, the coming of autumn or, uh, you know, it might be bird migration. So all these sorts of things. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's been, it's it's actually sort of developed, you know, quite organically, but it's, it's been a really interesting experience of you know, uh, putting these things together. Yeah, it's for, for me, um, yeah, obviously I jumped at the chance when, you know, when you when you asked me, Rob, to, yeah. to contribute. And it's really... Yeah, it's really lovely because it's the idea behind it is just that it, it is just wonderful but for me as well you know I love writing about nature as well so you know as much as I love my photography where that's been more limited you know I've, I've always wa- I wanted to get back more into writing and this has really given me an opportunity to do it and th- there's there's so many such big scope and there's so many different articles and that that have come through it and I, I you know I think it's a it's it's a really lovely idea yeah I mean it, the thing about it is that the people that we're writing for, I, I sort of liken it to, I don't know, tweet of the day meets spring watch. You know, we're, we're not talking about people that are going into the minutiae of, of certain species groups. We're talking about people that are finding a reconnection with nature. So, you know, they want, I hate to call it easy reading, but they want entertainment. You know, they want, um, they want the facts, but they want something that's, uh, you know, quite light. And if we're, you know, we're both photographers, well, we're all photographers, and it's a, it's another outlet for our own photography as well. So, 
not only are they getting the writing, they're, they're getting some, you know, some really nice imagery to go with it. And I think the combination of that, um, you know, is quite appealing. And what's been happening with the people that I've, I've been speaking to, because quite a few people in my village subscribe to it, uh, is that they are looking at things in a different way. So they're looking at their gardens and they're saying, okay, well, actually, maybe I could rewild a part of my garden because I can attract X, Y, and Z. Um, These are people that are on parish councils. So they're now looking at, well, do we have to cut the verges so often? Because actually, you know, are we not encouraging a greater degree of biodiversity if we don't do that? So, you know, these are people with, you know, are of an age where they've got um, property, money, and local political influence. So it, it makes a big difference when you start changing people's perspectives. Uh, and that's been one of the one of the brilliant things about this for me. You know, we're, we're able to do that. Yeah, I mean, it's and that's the thing, isn't it? It's like quite often we're we're, we're quite often preaching to the converted when we're sharing images or sharing stories. And sometimes it can be hard to reach other groups of people. And I think that's the one thing this has done is reached those other groups of people. You know, they, they wouldn't maybe normally be the people that would listen to a nature podcast or pick up a nature magazine or go looking and reading the nature news. But you just drop it into their inbox and all of a sudden you can spark that interest and hopefully that snowballs. And, you know, maybe verges do get cut less often. Maybe, you know, people do start rewilding parts of their garden. And, you know, if, if we could do that, across well, the country i mean imagine the impact it would have on the biodiversity well i i just think it you know it, you know we, we do have you know an ability to really change people's minds and attitudes um and it's it's through these sorts of things that you that we're going to be able to achieve that i think um you know and it's this sort of it's it's the age group that can make a difference i mean i'm all for encouraging you know, young people and them getting together. And we've seen this with Extinction Rebellion, um, certainly over the last sort of 12 or 18 months. But with the best will in the world, these people don't have the money, the property or the local political power to, to make a difference straight away. You know, they're the, they're the future. Mm. But we're really getting to people now. We're getting to people that can make a difference now. And that, you know, that has to that has to make you feel good. It makes me feel good. Yeah, I mean, I know, you know, it's not something that we've spoken about a lot, isn't it, Neil, about getting your younger people more enthused about it. But I said, you know, they don't they often, you know, they don't have they could struggle for time if they're if they have a family, Um, you know, money, probably don't have the money to be able to do anything. You know, there's all those influences. And when you go younger again and you've got school children and that, that they've got the enthusiasm, but they, they are the future. We need to be enthusing them for the future. But we need to be hitting those other people to hit now. Yeah. And, and that's the groups that this is hitting. Exactly. I mean, you know, you're talking about people with time on their hands, you know, uh, retirees, you know, mm. you know, people that are on the parish council. I mean, I've, I've had I've had an email from the, well, the local MP is, you know, lives in the next village. You know, and I had an email over the spring, you know, from his secretary asking me about, you know his pond because he's he's he'd obviously had an otter or something like that and it uh, devastating his amphibian population um, and, asking me, and asking me what he could do and to which I was tempted to reply remove your fish but I guess the otter did that for him anyway but uh. <laughs> <laughs> that's a tough one is it you, 
Who gets an otter in their pond? I mean, to be well, honest, if, if an otter got in my pond, it would actually fill the pond and probably displace all the water. <laughs> yeah, well, Andover is quite, an, it's quite a, an active area for, for otters, so I'm, I'm sure that's what it was. Mm. I'm absolutely positive that's what it was to cause, you know, the amount of devastation that was being described. But it just goes to show that, you know, the, your reputation grows on a, on a local scale as well as a, you know, as a more sort of wide ranging scale. And people are uh, ringing me up or knocking on my door asking about, you know, various issues that they have or asking me how they can improve, you know, the pond that they've got in their garden or, you know, these sorts of things. I, I just think, you know, if you multiply that throughout, you know, throughout the country, you make such a big difference. Yeah, it's, uh, it, you know, it's, it almost gives you a feeling of, you know, it makes you all worthwhile. And you think, well, maybe there is some hope after all. Yeah. You know, ne- negative stories that we've been talking about, you know, at, you know, at the start, you know, may- maybe there is some hope. Maybe we can persuade people. Um, I'll certainly give it a try. Yeah. Good stuff. I have to say thanks very much for some of the research, by the way, on some of the articles from your podcasts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that that's the great thing. You know, if, if our podcast can help other people, and our podcast is going to reach a different group of people than Purple Crow is going to reach. So mm-hmm. potential to really work work well together that they then reach different people. And okay, we're not going to cover the crabs of Christmas Island in a podcast. I'm going to tell you that now. But <laughs> Yeah, it sort of kind of go against the UK theme, really, wouldn't it? It would. Unless someone wants to pay for us to go to Christmas Island to promote it, then we'll do it then. <laughs> well, do, do you know what? That's, it's on my bucket list now, and I have yeah, me you know, too. Georgina, Georgina Stateler to blame for that. He wrote the article, uh, you know, for the photographers and you know, amongst your your listeners, oh. will know Georgina. That's for Trials sure. of Life, David Attenborough for me, and and along with robber crabs, that's the other thing I want to see. Yeah. Obviously, our coconut crab. Whatever well, you call it. yeah, there, there were robber crabs in her article. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what we could do? UK overseas territories. Yeah, there we go. Oh, Technically, yeah. UK wildlife. Oh, that means the Falklands. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> South Georgia, even more exciting. Yeah. And. I want to say Mount St Kilda. The one that had a giant earwig, but doesn't anymore, sadly. A whole <laughs> seven centimetres long. <laughs> yeah, I might have yeah. to have a look at that UK overseas territory thing. Yeah. <laughs> Montserrat. Montserrat's a UK territory, isn't it? Is it Montserrat? Montserrat's an amazing island. Yeah. Wow. Well, what's left of it? <laughs> no, it's actually bigger than it used to be, because although the volcano uh, destroyed part of it, it's actually created more land. Ah. And that, that's possibly one of the biggest tangents we've actually managed to go off on. Yeah, well, <laughs> ge- geographically speaking, certainly. From Andover yeah. to yeah. Montserrat. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know what's more exciting. <laughs> well, certainly sounds more exciting. Yeah, they, they have iguanas on Montserrat. <laughs> Andover's pretty good. And uh, local woodland, as, as we've, we've talked about, Vic, before, is, mm. um, is pretty amazing in terms of what it supports. I mean, it's, it's one of these sort of woodland islands you know sort of woodland oasis in a desert an arable desert and it it attracts you know a lot of really interesting things if you you know rummage around in there and have a good look in particular it's got probably the densest population of firecrest i've ever come across and there are a lot of people that are very jealous when i post pictures of firecrest and uh, i say well it's it's probably one of the most common things i see and certainly here in there all the time so yeah nice yeah. And it ju- it just it shows what amazing stuff you can actually find on your doorstep. 
but that's been the great thing about lockdown hasn't it and and I, I think this is you know this is where it's all coming from you know when it when it happened and and people just had to stay at home they discovered things that they never realized were there and and it almost took me back to my childhood i think you know when you you couldn't go very far because you you know your your um area was limited to how far you could cycle easily and so you concentrated on what was on on your doorstep and i had i was quite lucky when i was growing up and i was you know lived again right next door to a woodland and i hardly ventured very far you know it was a it was a great playground you know and that's really where my interest in all this sort of kicked off um you know sort of scrambling around in the leaf litter and climbing trees and uh, you know, in fact, that's one of the, you know, one of the first articles that I wrote for Purple Crow was um, based on the idea of woodland bathing, which I don't know whether you've, you, you two have heard of, but, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's basically the idea of walking into the woods and turning your phones off and, and just allowing the whole experience to, you know, almost consume you and just, just enjoy it, uh, you know, and, and all the sort of health benefits that, you know, getting closer to nature brings you and and so I wrote an article about that and a a lot of that was sort of reminiscing about my own childhood sorts of early experiences and I I think that you know what lockdown did earlier in the year was 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 reconnect people with those sorts of memories and those uh, those sorts of experiences so it wasn't all bad you know I think there's a there's a lot of good to have come from it yeah I mean I think you know certainly I know from my point of view and and you know I guess for Neil as well it's it's childhood memories, isn't it? I mean, I grew up climbing trees, crawling around outside, you know, seeing what calls I could find. I mean, you know, my, my dad would take us to do to help out with wildlife surveys at the local country park at the weekends. It was all local stuff. And then, you know, being in lockdown and you couldn't travel anywhere, you couldn't go anywhere. You, you suddenly started to read a lot of this stuff. I mean, I, you know, I started doing that with with my Forgotten Little Creatures project. Anyway, that first part was about finding stuff close to home. But you know, beyond that, then finding what what else is actually around. Yeah, I mean, I decided that that I would, with my partner's agreement, rewild part of the garden, just let the grass grow in in half of the garden, and it was just incredible what came up. And we had we recorded three species of bush cricket during the summer. I mean, and that was just in one. Well, just in a few months, letting it grow from April onwards. Mm. It's incredible what actually can appear. Um, you know, literally what you have literally in your backyard. Yeah, and it just needs a little bit of space. I mean, Neil and I have both got wild gardens. <laughs> yeah. We're only a couple of long months this year. But it only, but it only grew the last month anyway. <laughs> grow that is true, year. yeah. We're having ours remodelled at the moment because we're on a bit of a slope we're going for a two-tiered approach giving you know sort of a, a topical covid analogy um and uh, <laughs> part, but, but part of you know so basically we're sort of separating off the wildlife side from a sort of more formal you know enjoy the garden side so it's it, i think next year we're, we're well we're building a pond and we're going to let the, the top part of the garden grow wild i think it's going to be fantastic actually you know so I'm, i can't wait to see what what uh, what appears next year sounds good so there's there is another exciting project that yeah. I, I was going to say that you're working on, but it actually was launched at the weekend. And I know anyone that certainly follows me on, particularly on on Twitter, because I've not been as active on Facebook and that, but I've been more active on Twitter. You've probably seen me share a few tweets about this. Again, another really exciting 
project? Yeah, well, it, I've called it Wild Art Photographer of the Year. So I sort of wanted to, to do something a little different, you know, after my time with another competition and use my experience and my contacts in that competition and, and, and create something that I think, you know, is certainly going to resonate with a lot of people. And um, so I came up with, with, with the Wild Art idea. And, and I think what, the competi- what other competitions I've been involved with in the past have done for me is make me look at my photography in a different way. Because I was always quite a, a sort of literal photographer. But looking at so many fantastic images, it's, it's, it's quite humbling in a way because it, it makes you realise quite how far you, you really need to go to fulfil your sort of photographic potential. And, and I really started to enjoy the more sort of the more arty side of, of wildlife photography and and this is what the sort of this is what this competition is designed to do and i and i wanted to sort of get away from the the standard competition model to a degree because it sort of seems to to, to me to go most people you know have this sort of entry period um so you enter your pictures into a number of specified categories uh, then it all goes a little bit quiet. Then there's a short list and then it goes quiet for months and then the winners are announced. So you've got all these sort of peaks and troughs and people don't really know what's going on. Have I been shortlisted? You know. So I, I wanted to, to develop something that got over that as well. So what I, what I decided on in the end um, was going for uh, 10 categories, but spreading it out over 10 months. So for example, January is a category which we've called wet, and that's being run by uh, Gail Bisson from Canada. And then, so we just run it for a month, uh, then we close it, then we run the next category in the next month. And then sort of 30 or 60 days after the first category closes, we announce the winner. So you've got this sort of constant cycle of new categories, winners being announced. And, you know, it's just sort of concentrating on the more arty side of, of wildlife photography. And, and the other thing that think some competitions suffer from is is kind of what I call sort of megafauna syndrome where you know it always seems to me that larger mammals are given you know a, a sort of higher status than than you know a ladybird in, in your back garden but I think that that can be everything well even you know every bit as artistic as an African lion for example so it's not necessarily the, the subject it's how you it's how you take the picture. It's 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 the vision that you have for it. So I, I I wanted to sort of reach out to some of those people that may be a bit disenfranchised, perhaps with some of the other you know competitions that are out there. And so I'm hoping this is going to do it. So it's it's a structure which is it runs over ten months, and you have ten different categories. And one of the other really important things about it is that I asked each of the judges because I've chosen and um, you know, invited different judges to run each of the monthly categories was to support conservation cause as well. So uh, we've got everything from um, Nova Scotia Nature Trust to purchase uh, land for you know conservation management through to you know something like the Badger Trust or or more local. I think you're doing frog life, aren't you, Dick? I am. Yeah, that's my chosen charity. Through to sort of more localized things where you know small amounts of money can really make a big difference in the past i've been involved in in organizations where you know 300 quid might buy a few nest boxes somewhere but that makes a, a huge impact because every pound is working really hard so uh, I, we've got a really really lovely broad range of, of of charities that we're supporting so yeah i mean that that's that's effectively the idea but is to is to really celebrate the artistic side of, of wildlife photography
and I know Neil and I have spoken about this before, getting away from that charismatic megafauna situation. Yeah. That's something that we've certainly discussed a lot before. And also as photographers that have entered competitions before, by having it monthly, you don't have that mad rush to try and get your entries in before a couple of days before or an hour before. <laughs> and, you know, and, the, and the other thing is you can dip in and dip out. It's not it's not a question of you have to enter every category. You just take a look at it and say, well, no, that one's probably not for me. But, oh, I quite like the sound of that one because, you know, I've got X, Y and Z. I can enter into that. So it's not a question of saying, well, you have to enter every category. Enter one category. You could enter one picture into one category. You could enter 10 pictures into the 10 categories if you wanted to. You know, the choice is really is really down to the photographer. You know, it's, it's, it's not a compulsory thing. You just you just dip in and dip out, you know, depending on the sort of subject matter you've got. You know, I, I just think it's, you know, it's just a, a bit of a, a new way of looking at things. People will, you know, will empathise with in a way. And, and the categories are really interesting as well because it's not <laughs> animal portrait, animal behaviour animals in their environment it's not your standard categories you know you've got stuff like wet abstract eyes light they're very yeah. broad and you know you can interpret those any way you want you know obviously well, I, you know I there's, there's a few guidelines and stuff on there but you know just for some help but you can interpret however you want i mean i just thought we'd have a bit of fun with it to give somebody a, a sort of category title like animal portraits people know exactly what you're after and i have to say you're probably encouraging the sort of photography that we're trying to get away from in, in you know in, in a way because you know if you're talking about something like eyes for example how many different ways could you I mean okay it's got to include eyes clearly but you know there are lots of different ways you can interpret that you know that category description I mean light is that's the essence of photography isn't it but mm. light could include virtually anything got so we've got wet we've got space which is all of you know the space in the photograph you know the environment perhaps again interpret that how you will so it's eyes connection so those sort of those that could be i don't know connection between a predator and a prey you know there's sort of a symbiosis between two species those sorts of things we've got color well again natural world is full of color well let's have something that celebrates the color in in, in the natural world we've got motion you know and, and actually getting back to what we were talking about earlier about um, you know your own backyard we've got a category called backyard so that's something taken in your garden or on your local patch so you know again it's sort of getting away from this sort of we have to go on a trip to go and photograph some megafauna okay you might happen to live in south africa and be able to do that but yeah, you know, most of us don't have access to lions and elephants and those sorts of things on a, on a daily basis so photograph what's around you it's you know i i I want this competition to celebrate those species as much as anything else. And I think what's also really interesting is if you actually look at the lineup of judges, it's judged by photographers. Well, again, that was another thing that I wanted to address because it, it, it was a comment that was made quite often by people that would would enter other competitions and saying, well, you know, we're looking at the judging panel and what do they know about photography? What does that person know about photography? We want to see photographers on there. So that's what I put together. So everybody on that panel is a well-respected photographer that most people they will have heard of them i mean everybody from andy rouse through to you know, uh, peter van Busset, georgina steitler you know, david tipling william Steele from south africa rebecca nason uh, so i think i mentioned gail beeson from canada and josh Gilicki from the from the states and we've got somebody else from victoria hillman as well I believe. yeah I'm never sure. heard of her never heard of her <laughs> they're not only photographers in you know in their own right they're all they're representing different parts of the globe as well so they're 
their experiences you know the, uh, with sort of native wildlife quite different to each other so I, I just think it's a really nice mix with a really nice mix of ideas you know we'll, we'll, we'll see how it works but um yeah i'm, I'm really excited about it. i know well, you know we've, we've talked about it for a long time haven't we but um, we, yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's just exciting to be able to do something a little bit different start with a with a clean slate with the experience of what i've been involved with before so yeah it, it said so it all kicks off in in january so fingers crossed yeah it's interesting actually talking to people i mean i, I belong to a group on facebook called she clicks and it is it's a private group and it is for female photographers but it's a place where female photographers can feel safe now this isn't anything against male photographers per se i know a lot of lovely male photographers i mean apparently there's uh, neil phillips amazing macro photographer really nice guy too um, there's another neil phillips that says macro photographer <laughs> yeah, apparently so <laughs> go figure quite often women don't feel that they, they do create some more creative more artistic imagery they'll maybe post it in some groups on facebook and they get slated and they get all these comments and everything they haven't asked for criticism but then it's just given so i've shared it in that she clicks group and there seems to be quite a good response to it you know we probably should take this this point the rules are actually very similar to your kind of top end wildlife photography competitions yeah I mean, you, that, uh, you, know, you have to work within certain parameters. Certainly, you know, we again, you know, we've we've had you know long discussions over ethics and and those sort of sorts of things. So you have to have a fairly sort of formal structure. But like everything, I, I released the website relatively early because rules are one of those things that you know people look at quite closely and they want to scrutinise and they want to know what's allowed and what's not. And you tend to get a fair bit of feedback on them quite early. And that's kind of what I wanted because you can't get everything. Right. And I think as you go you know, through the process, it's worthwhile keeping an open mind about things and, and, and changing rules if, you know, if, if you think there's a there's a better way of doing something. And I had a classic example, actually, and, and I think, Neil, you'll you'll um, you'll relate to this. I mean, I had one chap who asked about you know, focus stacking and I and I basically wanted to to try and keep everything in camera. So I sort of drafted the rule on the basis of, well, it's got to be done in camera blah 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 and and uh, and then you know I, I was questioned about it and then I thought well actually no if, if it's a fair representation of what's in front of you then why can't we allow you know mm. a post-processing element to put that together yeah. so you know I altered the rule so it's I, quite I, funny in uh, BWPA there was a few comments made about my image saying oh now to stacking images are we now and I just went go read the rules and they had actually put it in there they hadn't made a big song and yes. dance about it but i carefully read it and <laughs> there's a few more stacked images the next year so yeah, well, <laughs> obviously i was the only one that spotted it i think I, but... if you want if you want to get people going write yeah. a blog about about digital manipulation and yeah. oh yeah. i mean you know you'll get everything from people saying you can't touch an image at all when it comes out of a camera through to people wanting to swap backgrounds out and all sorts of things. So it's a, it's a really difficult tightrope to walk, actually. Well, um, if someone shoots you know, raw, they can't say they haven't edited it because the moment <laughs> you... <laughs> depends what raw processor you put it in is how it's going to come up on the well, screen, doesn't well, it? Well, exactly. But, I mean, the, the whole thing is, you know, even in, in the days of film, I mean, we all know that those film needed a degree of oh, processing yeah. and, and digital is no different. If you're cutting things out and shoving them on different backgrounds, well, that's a whole different ballgame. But if you're, if you're enhancing what you've already taken getting the most out of the you know getting the most out of the pixels that you've recorded yeah. i don't see why that's so much of an issue 
Yeah, mm. I think that the biggest issues I've had with competitions is where they've said no cloning out, and then you know, some images that's come really high up, they say in the description they've cloned yeah. it out, or they obviously have done something like that and not declared it. But the other bugbear of mine was I went to a competition the other day, it was a closing that was coming up. I emailed the organisers and got nothing back, and it clearly said no professionals, you know, some anyone that earns money from their photog- a significant amount f- from their yeah. photography. Mm. And the last winner was a professional photographer. Now, whether that's happened since the competition ran last time, I don't know, because it's not an annual thing. But I kind of thought, hold on. <laughs> I just didn't enter it to be safe, because I don't oh, I don't earn that much money generally, but I earn a tiny fraction from my photography. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and I, I wouldn't consider myself a professional, maybe a semi-pro to, under some definitions. But yeah, yeah and what if you, you take photography as part of your main job? But is it, is that... <laughs> it, I think a lot, a lot of it comes under... so. I think is you are classified as a professional photographer if you earn more than 60% of your income mm. from yeah. photography. Now, this is where it gets interesting because I've looked at it and this competition has basically said you must earn, you know, uh, if you earn more than 60%, you're considered a professional photographer and you're not eligible for this competition. I was like, well, but what if you earn 60% of your income from, <laughs> for example, wedding photography? Yeah. Yeah. How does that work with wildlife photography? I'm not earning 60% of my income from wildlife photography. I'm earning it from wedding photography. But they don't specify it's just photography. So, you know, even if I just, for example, I am a full-time wedding photographer because I've gone completely nuts, you know, and I get 90% of my income is wedding photography, maybe 10% is wildlife. I'm still classified as a professional photographer and I cannot enter wildlife competitions. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the problem when you start putting these rules in, in place. And if you, if you make a rule, then you have to police it. It's the, I'll give you another example. It's this rule about if your picture has been awarded in another competition, you can't enter it into this. And, yeah. uh, you know, that that is such a difficult thing to police because, A, you know, what do you classify as a major competition? You've got to define that, number yeah. one, and then you have to police it by knowing what one something or other and you can't look at all the competitions around the world and know exactly what's won what and what's been awarded in, in another competition i mean you know i've been in a situation every year with a photographer where you know there will be something that looked at awarding and then it's been awarded in something else so it's in a breach of, of, of the rules uh, and then you'll put up a shortlist and you'll get a load of emails saying you can't let this person win because they won such and such with that photograph. That particular rule is 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 a classic example of how difficult it is to to actually police these things when you you know. So perhaps you take a different approach, and um, which is what I've done with wild art. I, I've, I've basically said that yes, you can enter them if you've won something else with that you know, with that picture. By all means, enter it, but please bear in mind that if you have on something major the likelihood is with the judging panel we've got they will have seen it and we're looking for new stuff we're looking for things that you know turn our heads and uh, well i'm so mine because i'm not judging but do you know what i mean it's it's you want something yeah. new you want something original you know that's that's the one piece of advice i would give anybody who's entering a competition is what she's looked for is something original you know yeah. something that they haven't seen before and, and that's what stands out to them yeah, I always think rules, things like that. You know, if it's if it's been seen before, you lose points for originality. And mm. I mean, the, the classic one being when I stick stuff in aquariums, I fully expect to be judged more harshly. Yeah. You know, if if someone's 
got managed to somehow get a camera in the pond and photograph the same thing, but not as well, artistically speaking, maybe not in your competition, but in a normal competition, I would expect to still lose to them. But the only reason I put those things in aquariums is because it's practically impossible to do it in situ. So, But I think as, as long as you're making people aware... Of yeah, you... that, that's the thing. I never have a problem with it. As long as the animal welfare is respected and people yeah. are honest about how they got it, mm-hmm. there's a certain recent competition i looked at some of the entries and went you know having a bit of a background in macro and i'm going that looks stacked that background yeah. looks dodgy and that thing, uh, they, they let's just say they did very well with that competition and i looked at it and went hmm yeah well, there, there was actually a, there was another one run this year and i'm not going to name any names but in the shortlist when it was announced there was some very questionable images in terms of the ethics as well mm. and this is i mean these were images of amphibians so yeah. we're not talking about birds or anything here we're talking about amphibians and the ethics and well we all know how I feel well, about that anyway but <laughs> well I've seen images where I know full well <clears throat> I'm not going to mention the species because it you know it kind of make it obvious but I know that what's coming in and taking uh, another bird the bird that it's taking has been tethered because there's absolutely no way in the wild you would ever get shots like that of an action sequence that that have been captured and so you just look at it and you have to throw it straight out because you just think, no, that's, you know, you can't, the photographer has, has, has basically misled you and you can't be seen to be condoning things as blatant as, as, as that and as horrible as that. Um, you know, you're, you're staking a live bird out somewhere to attract something in to kill it. That can't be right. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that, that crosses every ethical boundary in my book. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. But I mean, it happens. And, and this whole sort of point of ethics is a re- it's, well, it's another tightrope, which is very difficult to walk because I've, you know, I've had discussions with people about this in the past. And it's your it might be the, the, com- the comment that I had was your competition allows live baiting. And I said, well, no, actually, the rules basically state that although it's not strictly prohibited, there is a code of ethics here. Because if you turn around and say you don't allow knife baiting, then what about the person who puts mealworms out for a blackbird or a robin or, or something like that? You know, then that picture can't be allowed. So where's the line to be drawn here? It's, it's really, really tough. Um, well, the one thing I always thought interesting with baiting is I used to work in a park and people used to feed the foxes. Now, I didn't because they were putting them in danger by doing it because it was a public park. Fox, I'm not going to go into the story again. I mean, I've before on the podcast. And foxes had died and uh, it, it got pretty nasty between me and them because they even tried to get me sacked at one point. But I was photographing foxes that were tamer because they'd been feeding them. Now, they didn't come right up to me to get wide angle borderline fisheye shots with their nose touching the lens like they were dangling food below it but with my friend of mirror i was getting some quite nice shots because they come up to me if i was carrying around a separate bag they think i had food in it because that's what they're being fed you know yeah. well, i tended not to do, I didn't do that on purpose but just to be clear but i could get some nice shots from them because they were tamer because they've been fed well i haven't baited them but someone else has yeah so that counts baiting and then i mean maybe what if i'm at colin the cuckoo who's being baited by someone else to come down (laughs) but i'm not baiting myself do i then (laughs) i suppose you could argue that is baiting isn't it yeah but but then if if someone else has put the food down and you're photographing colin coming down for that food then that's not quite so gray that one is it but the the other one i gave you is a a little bit of a gray area it is a gray area you haven't actually baited it but But i've actually discouraged it (laughs) Yeah, but then you've still been able to get some images. So, it, yeah, yeah. And like I said, it's, and I know, you know, Rob and I, we've had 
huge discussions about ethics in the past and it, it's yeah. it's hard it's re- it's really difficult because you're you know changing the behavior of something uh, then potentially you're putting it in you know at risk uh, yeah. and the, the other classic of course is you know owls in canada you know some of the things that i've heard about you know some of the p- pictures that have been achieved there and you're changing a bird's behavior to get a photograph or you're changing an animal's behavior or whatever i think that's that basically the, the way i the ethics when i structured the rules it's like well okay you know baiting or not baiting that's not the issue it's a question of behavioral change you know we all know that like you know we don't like baiting that's it that sort of kind of goes without saying but you know a mealworm is live and that's quite a difficult thing to to you know stop people from doing so i think you know an ethical policy where you know you look at the situation you say look if you have altered something's behavior or you it's detrimental to whatever you're photographing then that's when we're going to have a problem because the, the other thing that and another example i gave to somebody was well you're not you're saying that we shouldn't allow live baiting per se and that's the way the real rule should be written well what about you're out on a boat and you're photographing seabirds and the people that are running the boat have caught fish which they then kill and they chop up and they throw over the side for chum to attract seabirds in how you know is that any different to you know ethically to something live because you've you've taken something you've killed it and you've done it to attract something and take your photograph so where do you know it's such a difficult area where do you draw the line Mm. I mean, you see photos of people with pheasants that look like they've been shot rather than run over, but they would have been shot anyway for sport. And <laughs> there's not, we've already gone into the uh, yeah. Yeah. Of pheasant release in the first one. You could, or if there's a pheasant, you could argue you're doing the wildlife a favour with it by um, having it shot. And, you know, or if it's, say, like rabbits that have been controlled yeah. because, you know, they're, I don't know, damaging a structure or something like that, and then they're put out for bait for something, you know, it's kind of. And. Yeah, because you say, oh, well, you shot that to then feed it to that. But then if you've gone and bought a chicken down, in the... <laughs> it starts getting into a real minefield. Well, or, 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 or you've picked up roadkill. Yeah, see, roadkill, uh, you, you, you're you, actually helping the wildlife there because you're taking the roadkill out of the road. But do you see what I mean? You see how yeah. difficult this is to, to navigate. And yeah. when you're putting a competition together, you're you're basically putting yourself out there to, to for people to, to actually criticise. And quite rightly in some um, circumstances, but you have to... You have to draw the rules somewhere. And it's, you, you know, you're never going to please all the people all the time. But I try to please as many people as I can. And I, th- I think people that, that know me and have dealt with me over the years will know that actually, you know, if they do get in touch with me, I'll always talk to them. Because I just think that's the way you've got to be. You've got, I'm a really hands-on person. And I, I, if somebody asks you a question and, and or they've got a grievance or they something that they, they want to an answer to, then... You know, talk, you know, and, and maybe by talking to these people, you can actually improve things for everybody else. Because, yeah. I, you know, I, I can't get everything, you know, 100% right straight away. And everyone's not going to agree anyway, even if you try. Well, 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 no, exactly. Because, you know, you'll try and please somebody and then that won't please somebody else. So ultimately, you have to make a decision for yourself. But if you, if you talk to enough people and you've listened to enough arguments either way, then you can make your own decision. But ultimately, you're the one that has to make the rules. And ultimately, you know, people that enter the competition have got to decide whether they're happy with them or not. I hope that I've, you know, I've got it pretty, pretty much right. But as I said, I'm, I'm at this stage of the game before anybody's to do, before anybody's, uh, you know, paid the money and entered, then, you know, it, it's, it's open to a little bit of tweaking, shall we say? I'm not, you know, not going to make wholesale yeah. changes, but 
somebody's got a sensible suggestion and you say actually now that's a that's a better workaround for that then yeah great um, and this is this is an ongoing process anyway and, I mean, and i think i think the thing is as well it, it's from the photographer side it's about being open and honest so if as judges we say do you know what i'm not 100 percent. can we please get the background information or can we ask the photographer yeah. a few questions now from my point of view as a photographer i would rather somebody come back to me and say look we've just got a couple of questions i hope you don't mind can you just tell us a little bit more about how this image was taken you know i would rather somebody came back to me and and asked me and then i yeah. had a chance to explain and be completely honest about it. Now, as photographers, we really do, in my view anyway, have a responsibility to be honest about how images were taken so that people completely understand and they're not seeing a false view of nature. So there's that you have to have those open lines of communications between, you know, judges, organisers and photographers, ultimately. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, I've always said that, you know, rather than go down the road of prohibition, it's a it's a question of people being honest in the way they've taken pictures, because then you can make a, a measured judgment on taking everything into consideration. And I think that's the way rather than saying you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do the other. Well, you're left with what can I do? I'd much rather go, well, look, these are the guidelines. This is the ethical policy. This is what we expect of you as a responsible photographer. And we expect you to tell us exactly how you took that picture or if there are anything, if there's anything that you think you should disclose, then you disclose it at the point of entry in the metadata or however you do it. And that's that's really the way I, I want to get to. And that's the approach I've had uh, in the past. And that's the approach I'm going to take with, with Wild Art as well. Yes, you're going to have issues with people that will just try and take advantage of that. But I, I think we've got enough experienced people that, when that happens, you, you know, you're going to have you're going to have the questions raised um, and you're going to have that situation where you go back, whoever it might, might concern, and, and, and ask those additional questions and ask the uh, additional evidence of, of what they've done and how they've done it. Because ultimately it does reflect on the competition if you, you know, if you don't pick something up. Yeah, you know, I, it, it's, 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 it's always a danger. But I, as I said, I think we've got enough experienced people on the panel to, to pick things up. And I think it's it's wide experience as well. There's, there's people with experience in a lot of different species. So, you know, somebody who might specialise in birds might not necessarily pick something up if it's, say, invertebrates or an amphibian or something. But then someone has a speciality in that might not necessarily pick something up in birds. So you've got that lovely exactly. mix of experience, really. Well, it's, it's another reason that I, w I wanted to put a panel together, which is entirely photographers, because, you know, they're so experienced, they will pick, they will pick most things up i'm not going to say everything will be because there was something and there, and there will be there will be a few issues i'm sure down you know as we go through the process but you know they will pick most things up and i think it's important from certainly my perspective and i know everybody else that's involved with it is that we are seen to be ethically responsible you know and make sure that anything that we award has been taken in an ethically correct way if you like for want of a better phrase probably not the best way of putting it but you know do you know what i mean it's, it's yeah on the sort of the flip side i suppose uh, the two worst ethics police people i've come across are nine the first one is well I think most professional photographers have come across him is totally we must never use bait yet runs workshops that involve bait but the personally the worst one I came across was many many years ago before Donna Nook was quite as popular as it is now a friend of mine and myself went not to Donna Nook but miles up the coastline and walked along the beach to get 
towards the edge of the colony so we didn't disturb any of the pups because we wanted to get the adults in the sea because at the time we didn't know there was other places to go but long story short and photograph them in the sea we got home put them on a forum and this certain photographer who some people might be able to guess who this is from <laughs> what i'm saying so i better be careful started laying into us calling us a disgrace and everything like that and then we, we went sort of calmly said to him oh no no we didn't actually go down on the beach because Lincolnshire Wildlife just asked you not to go on the beach where the colony was we went further down to make sure we didn't stir any pup but he didn't relent he just kept laying into us and telling us we were a disgrace five seconds of digging on this forum in his gallery and there's wide angle shots of the pups on the, yeah. on the beach and we said well what about these and he just totally ignored us saying doesn't matter what you know blah, blah, blah. what other people saw this stuff going on people were sending me personal messages apparently he was one of the worst offenders of sitting yeah. between seal pups and their mums and stuff like that and you look through his stuff and he's got pictures of schedule one birds on nests and all sorts so and every time i've heard him mentioned it's never been positive for that way from the ethics point of view well, so okay so that's to get called up by people you know we need to question each other to some degree but there's ways of doing it and a lot of the worst critics are often as bad worse, <laughs> if not worse mm. yeah. people are criticizing but it sounds i mean overall yes i think both purple crown world are, are like they're amazingly exciting projects i know for one i'm incredibly excited and honored to be part of both of them and i honestly can't thank you enough Rob, for asking me well, no, it's, 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 i guess it's it's like a family of people that's what i'm trying to put together of, of like-minded mm. people because you know both things have a you know we have an opportunity to make a difference be it by changing people's attitudes with Purple Crow and getting them more engaged with nature or with wild art, you know, with it, not only with the sort of conservation angles and aims that we've got with it, but I think it goes deeper than that. It, the beauty of nature and, and being able to portray that in photography and being able to put that in front of so many people, uh, that has the ability to change opinion and to highlight issues. You know, never, you know, we've never been in a position before where there's been so much photography available. I mean, it's why, we, you know, we can't now make money, you know, taking <laughs> photographs because there's so many, so many. Yep. <laughs> but, but the positive side of that is that is because there is so much out there, there's so much more opportunity for us to know people and tell a story. And, and that's that's what I want to do. I, you know, with Wild Art, I want to be able to produce something that is completely beautiful and just sort of celebrates wildlife in a com- different way. I mean, I know there are, there are lots of sort of photography books out there, a lot of you know wildlife photography books out there. But I, I, I do want to do something a bit different. I do do want to to make this completely beautiful and uh, you know a complete celebration of uh, of wildlife across the world, you know, in a, in a different way. I think we better start <laughs> wrapping it up. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you guys. And I have to say, I have to say that you have done a fantastic job with this podcast i've listened to so many episodes well virtually all the episodes you've done such a nice variety of stuff and some great guests and i think you've done a, i think you've done a fantastic job absolutely honored to be on it to be honest oh thank oh, you Rob. thanks That's very really much lovely. just got an announcement uk wildlife podcast live is coming we're gonna launch probably on youtube i think we're pretty much sure it's gonna be youtube now on youtube we're going to be doing some live shows because we can show you some pictures but when we're both photographers it's quite frustrating <laughs> that we can't show you pictures on podcasts so it might be that being monthly or something like that we're going to play it by ear yeah it, it shouldn't affect the podcast output so don't worry it's an additional thing because i'm a glutton for punishment and because it's live i don't have to do any editing so i like the idea <laughs> <laughs> but yeah we should show some videos and yeah we'll see you'll see what happens it should be good yeah 
Um, right. So just quickly, Rob, do you want to tell us where we can, where people can find Purple Crow and Wild Art? Yeah, so websites, obviously. So the Purple Crow website is uh, www.purplecrow.co.uk. And we're also on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Um, at Purple Crow Wild, I think is, uh, yeah, that, that's the handle for all of those. And Wild Art is uh, www.wildart.com. Uh, P-O-T-Y dot com. So P-O-T-Y for Photographer of the Year. Uh, and you'll find us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook too. So, yeah, come and come and say hello. And we'll, we will share those links on our channels yeah. as well. So you can just click through rather than having to remember all those. From us, it's just come follow us Twitter at UK Wildlife Pod on Instagram at UK Wildlife Podcast and on Facebook search for UK Wildlife Podcast and we come up yeah so go follow us now and if you like what we've heard please do go give us a review on Apple or whatever your podcast provider is and oh. yeah share us with all your friends and family as well it's wherever busy. you are in the world yes right well I think that's it from us so thanks again Rob yep big thank you again Rob and it's bye for me yep and bye for me as well take care everyone bye bye <laughs>